Good morning. Glad to have all of you here. We are delighted to see so many on a gloomy, rainy morning. And uh, we are finishing our vision series um, this week. We've been looking at First Peter and looking at values that every church, not just our church, but every church throughout all the ages of church history should have as their values, as First Peter teaches us. And so we've come now to our last installment in this series from First Peter chapter 2. The words will be on the screen, on your bulletin, and to here to help us with the reading of it, Nardine. Okay, our reading today is from First Peter chapter 2, verses 11 to 17. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Just uh, to let the tech team know, I don't see the Q&A phone down here, so if you want me to do Q&A later, I'd be glad to pick it up from you. But now we begin. Be who you are. This is the fundamental message of 1 Peter, and it is deeply needed today. We often do not know who we are, and therefore we do not know how we should live. Particularly how we, who are Christians, should conduct ourselves in the confusing and often hostile world that we find ourselves in. In our final look at First Peter, we will see that Peter wants to equip us to live in this world that is not our home, so that the world can see the glory of Jesus and can find its true home in Him. As Peter gets to the heart of his practical teachings here in chapter 2, he reminds us of three essential truths that will help us navigate our time here on earth. And in all three of these, Peter says one thing each time. Our identity drives our conduct. We cannot take these steps and embrace them without knowing and embracing who we are. And our identity is that we are sojourners. Our identity is that we're foreigners and exiles, pilgrims, as it were, journeying on the way home. And home is home because Jesus is there, because He is our heart's true home. Peter says this, firstly, submit to God for your sake. Secondly, submit to God for their sake. And finally, submit to them for God's sake. Submit to God for your sake. Submit to God for their sake. Submit to them for God's sake. Let's look at these three. Submit to God for your sake. Uh, it's interesting because Peter has written in previous 
passages that we should be holy because God is holy. The character of God makes us want to imitate Him and bring glory to Him. Now, Peter starts this passage with two additional reasons why we should be holy. And here's the first of them. Be holy for your own sake. Submit to God for your sake. He opens this passage with a kind of summary, and the summary is this is who we are. He says we are sojourners. The Greek word here literally means someone whose home is elsewhere. Our present home is a temporary residence, not our true home. Our present home should feel temporary as if we are renting it. The second word he uses to describe us is stranger. It means the custom, the culture, the values of the world you are residing in are unnatural and foreign to you. There should be a tension within you as you navigate life here in this present world because it doesn't love what you love. It's not going where you're going. It's not loving what you love. And if you do not feel that tension... If you feel that the world fully captures and aligns with who you are and who you want to be, I need to tell you, then this world is your home, and these encouragements have almost nothing for you. But if you do feel that tension, that tension within you, then your identity is embedded in God. And into our hearts, minds, and desires, and lens through which we see all of life is this idea. Be holy. He says it here, abstain from the passions of your flesh which wage war against your soul. Now, when Peter uses the word passions of our flesh, he doesn't, he may also mean like physical pleasures, but the word here is the epithumia, the over desires of your natural human condition. What he means here is that there are things that are lovable, good, financial success, good reputation, artistic excellence. These things are good, but they're epithumia, things that we find too good, things that are too important to us, things we cannot do without. They've captured our desires, our dreams. They shape our conduct. In this context, the reader would be thinking not just of, say, physical pleasures, but also good things that they desire, but which wage war against their soul. You see, men and women, our souls are battlegrounds. Our souls are where desires fight for control. Our consciences, our hearts, are places that Scripture says are the battlegrounds for us. These desires in and of themselves may be good, but if in the depths of our heart we long for them, we nourish upon them, we feed upon them, and then we allow them to shape our sense of who we are, then they shackle us to what they want. Our careers, our kids, our reputation, our artistic prestige, the gospel says these desires can master us. Then they become a cancer that corrupts us. And Peter says, for the sake of your soul, watch out. Do not give them that kind of control. Abstain from them. Whatever it takes to free yourself from the cancer, wake up and stay away. Their very goodness and their power that the culture gives them to define you 
are the very things that should make you wary of them. Peter says, submit instead to God for the sake of your soul. Submit to God for your sake. Secondly, submit to God for their sake. Now, who's the their sake that I'm talking about here? Well, in verse 12, he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. That word Gentiles can also mean the nations. In context, what it means is, Christians, keep your conduct around the outside non-Christian world honorable. Why? So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What he says there is, they may speak against you as evildoers, but they will come to become one of you as Christians, so that when Jesus comes again on the day of visitation, they will glorify him as followers of Jesus. Now, let's think about this for a moment. Firstly, what does Peter expect? Peter expects that a secular, non-Christian culture will speak against the Christian church and call the things that the Christian church values evil. Sometimes that critique will be just and fair. Sometimes we've been wrong and we need it. Sometimes that critique will be unjust and unfair. This world is not our home. We're called to appreciate the just critiques, appropriate them, and change. We're called to endure the unjust ones, expect them, and keep going. Jesus said in John 15, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Expect our conduct to be critiqued just because we're Christian. The second thing is that Peter expects our conduct as a church to be not only critiqued, but at the same time, so beautiful, so countercultural that people are literally going to become Christians as a result. Our, our behavior as a people is to be an argument, is to be an apologetic for the truth of Christianity that cannot be denied. Our conduct is to be our calling card, calling people to Jesus. People will see our good deeds so clearly that even though in popular circles, they might be disdaining us verbally. Quietly, they're wondering about us. I remember when I was uh, in university and I was investigating Christianity publicly, I was mocking it to my friends over the first beer and then over the second beer. After about the third beer, I'd quietly wander over to those Christians and start asking questions. I laughingly told this story after I'd become a Christian to my friends who are Christians, and they went, yeah, we call it the third beer of courage, because it takes a few beers for you to actually find the courage to get beyond what you think will please the crowd to what your heart's really talking about. They will become Christians because of the way we treat each other and the way we treat our skeptical culture, even while calling us evildoers. Men and women, this is our calling, and this has been the church's resume in the past. Some Christians think that it must be conduct that the culture verbally approves of. They think when they read this passage, oh, I just need to do the things that the culture approves of, and I will get this passage for me. I need to tell you that's not what the passage is talking about. I've been a Christian a long time, well over 35 years now. And I've seen the church time after time 
try and do what it thinks the world approves of. So in the late 80s, when I was a new Christian, uh, the popular thing at the time was business. Business was booming. The stock market was going crazy. CEOs were lionized in our culture. And the church tried to be corporate and slick. And its pastors dressed like CEOs. Then in the 90s, it became cool to be entrepreneurial as the tech boom started and everyone wanted to be entrepreneurial and innovative and small and unique. And churches started to be innovative and church planting got popular and pastors stopped dressing like Donald Trump and started dressing like Stephen Jobs, imitating the culture. And then North America discovered coffee culture and every church was marketing. First it was, hey, we have Starbucks. And then, oh man, not Starbucks, come on. You know, single note, organic. We know the farmer from Costa Rica where we get this coffee, you know. And so the church starts marketing this stuff and the culture just looks at it and goes, yeah, you're five years behind us. I've had all that marketing already. There's nothing authentic there. And Peter agrees. The gospel expects Christians to act in such a way that while being spoken of evildoers, there's something so transcendently, universally, timelessly beautiful about the way we act that around the third beer, they start asking questions. In ancient Roman culture, uh, Karen Jobes, NT scholar, puts it really well. She says, the challenge Peter presents to us as thoughtful Christians, is to live by those good values of the society that are consistent with the gospel and to reject those that are not consistent, thereby maintaining one's Christian identity distinctively. This is what we're called to do. And it's what we used to do. In ancient Roman culture, for example, in Rome, when the earliest church was in Rome, there was a practice of infanticide. Romans who didn't want their kids would quietly bring them to a wooded forested area, not quite at the heart of the city, but pretty close, and just leave the unwanted child there to die of exposure. Christians became known as those who haunted those areas, listening for the cries to pick the baby up, adopt it, and give it life. But it didn't change the culture. But then epidemics started to flood into the Roman Empire And Christians, again, did something distinctively different. Rodney Stark, sociologist and professor, uh, who I think became a Christian over time because he made it his focus to do a historical, sociological study of the impact of Christianity, said this in his book, The Rise of Christianity. In the year 165, under the reign of Marcus Aurelius, a devastating epidemic swept through the Roman Empire. No one knew how to treat those who were stricken, nor did most people try. Many fled the cities, but for those who could not flee, the typical, including doctors fleeing the city, by the way, but for those who could not flee, the typical response was to try to avoid any conflict, any contact with the afflicted, since it was understood that the disease was contagious. Hence, when the first symptoms appeared, victims were often thrown into the streets where the dead and dying lay in piles. Christians, though, met the obligation to care for the sick rather than desert them and thereby saved enormous numbers of lives. In his history of 
this period, Eusebius writes, Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ, and with them departing this life serenely happy. For they, the Christians, were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many in nursing and curing others transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. Amazing. Why did they do this? Because of who and whose they knew they were. Professor Stark, again. The impact of Christian mercy was so evident that by the fourth century, when the emperor Julian attempted to restore paganism, he exhorted the pagan priesthood to compete with the Christians. But there was little or no response to Julian's proposals because there were no doctrines and no practices for the pagan priest to build upon. Christians believed in life everlasting. Pagans did not. Here it is their identity as those whose home was coming allowed them to act so distinctively in the home they found themselves in that the world that watched them came to them and said, what is it that you have? Professor Jobes puts it well that one trait of human nature seems to be that people watch strangers more closely. Men and women, if you are a Christian, this is true of you. The non-Christian world is watching us closely, more closely and judging us more severely than we want to sometimes. Keep doing it, those of you who are part of the city. We need it. It is true because in your watching, we hope you see Jesus in us. Submit to God for the sake of your soul. Submit to God for the sake of your neighbor. Submit to God for your sake. Submit to God for theirs. Finally, submit to them for God's sake. Verse 13, Peter picks up this idea of submission And he says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Live as people who are free. Sorry, for this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Now in the flow of Peter's letter, this is not actually a third point. It is a test case application of the first two. How to live as sojourners and exiles. In this case, how to deal with a non-Christian world and power and institutional structure that may be quite hostile to you. Remember, these people who are reading this were expelled from Rome for being Christians who told other people about Jesus. And Peter reminds us that by virtue of being Christians, we will be treated as strangers. There will be people who, it says here in ignorance, will speak against Christianity and in unfair ways. Now, what would your reaction be if you had been expelled and sent to Toronto for your beliefs? What would be your reaction? As Dr. Jobes points out, history has shown us that there are two tempting reactions. 
that both Christians and non-Christians tend to move toward when they're being mistreated. The first one is to privatize your beliefs. Take your identity, take your beliefs, put them in a closet so that other people can't see, can't critique, can't persecute, can't oppress you. This is what the LGBTQ community did in North American culture for centuries. This is what many Christians are beginning to do in Canada now as the culture has become more hostile to them. Privatize. The other great temptation is to tribalize, to gather together as a tribe and fight openly, aggressively for your beliefs, to take political, legal, and other action, become very defiant, treat everyone who is not with you as against you. This is what the gay community has done starting in the 70s and 80s with much success. This is what the Christian church in the United States has begun to do in the last decade or so. Privatizing tends to work on an individual level because you can get ahead and you don't get critiqued, you don't get oppressed, but you compromise who you are because you're not called to be silent if you're a Christian. Tribalizing tends to work on a corporate level for the whole group, but the level of tension and conflict tends to corrupt you into demonizing people who don't agree with you. I was talking to an LGBTQ pioneer and leader this summer, and they admitted that that was beginning to happen in several facets and areas of the LGBTQ community. And the gospel presents here a different way. The gospel says when we as Christians are in those situations, don't privatize, don't go in the closet, don't tribalize. Submit to God by submitting to the institutions. It says, be subject to them. As an act of the will, allow them their authority. Why? Because, men and women, you are not just exiles and sojourners. The whole point he's beginning to make here is that we're ambassadors in our exile of our true home. And as ambassadors, let us not miss this. In the face of a hostile culture which says foolish things about Christians and wise things sometimes and perhaps marginalizes us unfairly, the gospel says, do good, submit to these human institutions, bear the foolishness, bear the ignorance, bear the wrong that may be unfair or misplaced. And I submit to you, this is hard. We want to either privatize or tribalize. Edmund Clowney, reflecting upon our current culture, in his commentary on this passage, wrote this. This whole section is in direct antithesis to the spirit of our present world, where every individual and group demands its rights. So let us sit with this. Keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles has this application. When the Gentiles, the world that is not Christian, feels like it's unfairly critiquing or treating you poorly, you submit to it as a public witness to your freedom from needing it. Two quick applications. Firstly, let's look at the application of submission, and secondly, let's look at the application of showing grace, because they're both in these words. Submit. 
It's a general gospel principle. We know if you've ever read Romans, Romans 13 says we're to submit to government institutions. And the reason is clear there. Because the ruler of these institutions is not named Trudeau or Ford, Biden or Putin. The leader of them, whom they serve, is God. He has sovereignly allowed and ordained these people to be allowed to rule. In our case, as a democracy, we actually elected them. And so as people who want to submit to God, we show our submission to God by submitting to His delegated rulers. Now, there are questions, of course, and this is complicated. I did a degree in political theory, so I know how complicated this is. When do we not submit, particularly to democracies? That, do it in the Q&A if you want to. But the New Testament is clear for the Christian church. When do you submit? When you can. When do you not submit? When submitting to the government will cause you to disobey God. So Peter, in Acts chapter 4, confronted by authorities, brought in and told that he is not to keep sharing the faith, says this. They called in Peter and John, charged them not to speak at all in the name of Jesus, and Peter and John answered them this way, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, but we cannot stop speaking of what we've seen and heard. Paul also applied and appealed to Rome when he was about to be put on trial because he was a Roman citizen and he wanted his full rights. So what the gospel says is submit when you can, but when submission says you don't submit to me, submit to me. Because I'm the ruler in this whole context. Now, I have to say for me, I am tempted to tribalize and I'm tempted to privatize. It's a little harder as a pastor to privatize. People know what I do. It's a lot easier for you. Why wouldn't you go one of those two ways? And the answer that is given here is, for the Lord's sake, submit. For the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ, submit. A little later in this passage, if you've got your Bible open, verse 21 says, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you as an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that, he might die to, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Do you hear that? It says he did that for us as an example and he did that for us to bring us home. He lived a holy, beautiful life in right in front of people who hated him, who questioned him, who rejected him, who slandered him, lied about him, falsely accused him, got him arrested and got him tried, got him convicted and got him hung on a tree, nailed to a cross. 
He submitted to their ignorant accusations. He submitted to their rejection. He submitted to their trumped-up charges. He submitted to their unjust sentence of death, and he submitted to being murdered by being nailed to wood. Why? He submitted to God for them who rejected him and them who would come after him, which them is us who believe in him. He submitted to God to save us from the penalty of our sins. He submitted to God to show God's holiness to the world. He served us, and now he calls us to follow after him and to submit to God for our sake and to submit to them for his sake. Submit to God by submitting to these institutions as a public witness, as exiled ambassadors. Secondly, show grace to each other. It says here in the final words, it says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but by living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. We've talked about honoring everyone. We've talked about fearing God and honoring the emperor. But this phrase, love the brotherhood, means this. It means that when we submit to these institutions, we're going to have various opinions on how to submit well. We're not going to agree with each other all the time. But we need to show grace to each other. In the early church, the issue of what to do with food sacrificed to idols divided the church. And you can imagine why. Most of the meat that was being fed to people in the Roman Empire had been sacrificed to some god or goddess. There were many, and all your meat was. So if you ate meat, you knew it had been sacrificed, prayed over on, on the altar of some foreign god. And as a Christian, it wasn't your god. And so you were being disloyal to your god, so I'm not going to do that. And so you become a vegetarian. Other Christians, usually have been Christians longer, like, dude, there's only one God. The one God we worship. There's no other gods. Don't worry about it. Let's eat meat. And then the vegetarians go, you, 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 don't, re- you don't really follow God. Ah, you disappointed me. You're not really following God. You're allowing yourself to eat food. If there's no gods, then these are sacrificed to demons. You're getting involved in occultic stuff. And the older ones are like, hey, you don't understand God's grace. We're forgiven. We're prote- you, you can see how this goes. This is the argument that Christians have been dividing on for years. It was the argument about alcohol. It was the argument in COVID. Very similar kinds of divisions. You don't take government overreach seriously. You are allowing these kind of restrictions against us. You don't take public health safety. You're not abiding by these. The godly thing to do is to love your neighbors by taking all of these restrictions and maximizing. No, the godly thing to do is to love generations of Christians coming down the pike by stopping government overreach, which is clearly what's happening. Who's right? I have no idea. I have a degree in political theory. I've studied this as a Christian theologian, and I don't know because I'm not God. 
I don't know if Canada is moving towards too much government overreach. I don't know how effective social distancing and masks and vaccines ultimately were. We still live in the not quite knowing. And in the not quite knowing, God is saying, start bestowing grace on each other. Because we know the gospel central message, Jesus died and rose again and He offers forgiveness for sins. That we hold in common. We know central implications. We are exiles and strangers. But this isn't either of those. This is as exiles and strangers. How do we apply it to a particular contextual situation of a particular pandemic in our culture? There needs to be room to show grace to each other. Because we're not God. Submit to God knowing all by admitting we don't. And serve one another. In Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul writes this. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, i.e., and there is... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Doesn't mean you disagree. It means you work for charity and grace to each other. Then he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. The Greek word there is hooper echo. To count others as better, more significant, more valuable than you. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but to the interest of others. Have this mind among you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself and emptied himself and took the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of humans, Found in human form, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. He hooper echoed himself, he emptied himself that you might become his brothers and sisters. He emptied himself that you might be freed and forgiven for your sin. He emptied himself to serve and save those who are lost. And that's why. We serve and submit. That's why we show grace to each other and hooper echo and serve each other because he is our example and because he is our treasure. Our treasure, men and women, is not our political freedom, not our economic system, not our affluence, not our friends, not our resume. They will fade away. And when we pass from this earth, they will pass from our care. And when we pass from this earth, we will meet someone whose name is not Trudeau or Biden or Putin or Ford, whose name is Jesus, the one who rules all things and gave up all things that we might inherit all things with him. And we will see the love shining in his eyes that was the love that brought him to the cross and we will look at him and we will go, ah, all that my heart longed for, all that my soul epithumiad over-desired is nothing compared to you, 
The only way we can have the freedom from injustice to ourselves, the only way we can have the power to abstain from these wonderful things that our hearts desire is to have them replaced with a greater one. Jesus, who's meant to be our treasure, who's meant to be our heart's true home, who died and rose and is coming again to be just that to each of us. Treasure Christ because He is our treasure and you will find the freedom and the power to do this. Christ is your treasure and Christ is yours forevermore. Make Him so and this will be you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you and I praise you for your goodness and your grace in our lives. We thank you that you are our treasure. We thank you that you went to the cross to make us yours forevermore. And we thank you that we can therefore say you are ours forevermore. And we pray that in that identity would flow this freedom to really be strangers and exiles, serving, submitting, loving, awakening, and changing. We pray that we would be faithful witnesses, exiles and ambassadors for you because you are worth it. You are worthy. Help us to know that, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. The uh, Q&A phone was actually with Stephen the whole time. I apologize. I had forgotten we have a new protocol uh, whereby Stephen reads out the questions. So uh, we have very many questions, and Stephen's going to try and pick out some of the most representative ones for our Q&A. Go ahead, Stephen. Okay. Uh, first one is this, and this question is uh, a question that was submitted a few times in different forms. In different ways, okay. Yeah. How do we as Christians live distinctly as believers, submitting to the government as opposed to conforming to it? Wouldn't submission and conforming look like one and the same to non-believers? If it does, that means good things about the way the government is acting from a Christian perspective. So, yes, uh, one of the the discussions that happens is you can't always look to… If you agree with the culture and the culture is doing what you feel like is the right thing and that the gospel says is right, you should agree with it. And uh, Christians need to both embrace being exiles and sojourners, but also realize that every culture has many things that agree with what the gospel says Christians should agree with and love and value. And so, yes, uh, I think that you should, and you will look a lot like the culture in those moments. The difference is, hopefully, you're not demonizing the people who disagree with you in the same way that our culture tends to be doing right now. You're distinctively showing grace to those who disagree with you, and that's how you would be distinctive. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Next question. Uh, Are Christians allowed to participate in political activism if the concerns have to do with our convictions on justice and peace more than anything specific to religious life. Yes, uh, Christians are always allowed to be politically active, both for their own uh, values and also for values that are common to many other people, like, for example, social justice or the environment, etc. So absolutely political activism is good. It's just not an ultimate good because our ultimate home isn't here but Christians should be involved in the public square and the public sphere. It is not just in a political democracy our right, it is our obligation. Okay, 
Thank you. And the last question. Um, it's a little bit on a different note, but does God get mad at us when we do wrong things? If so, it's easy to want to do good things just to make God not be mad at us all the time. How should we view God when we mess up? Where does the gospel fit into his frustration with us? Great question. I forget the name of the author who said it well. The more you love your son, the more you will hate in your son the drunkard, the lazy, and the, I forget, the coward or something like that in him. Um, the biggest paradigm change that, that needs to happen, if you believe in God but you are not yet a Christian, and if you believe in God and you are a Christian, is when you believe in God and you're not yet a Christian, you tend to look at God as your boss. I need to perform for him to get a good performance review. When you become a Christian, that boss becomes your father. Uh, he already loves me. He has adopted me. He cares for me. Does he still want me to do good things? Both your father and your boss want you to do well for different reasons, and your relationship with them is vastly different. Um, you, you have a heavenly father who has already shown great grace to you, so in gratitude and love, you want to do it for him. In, in the other situation, you're often doing it for self-promotion or just to keep him off your back. So the motivation becomes very different, even though the conduct may look very similar. Okay, thanks. Uh, I'll try and answer some of the other questions later. Thank you for all those questions.